when you're making decisions, to do so when you only have half the story. Have you ever been there? you ever been at a place where you're having to make some consequential decisions in your life and you just certainly, well, hopefully you're aware that you don't know half the story. I think even worse than not knowing the, half, the whole story is not knowing that you don't know half the story and you're still culpable for the outcome, particularly the way that you handle the given situation. It's like thinking about an iceberg and you're in the North Atlantic and you see this iceberg and you see it peeking out the top of the water and recognizing that only 10% of that iceberg is visible to you. If you know anything about icebergs, 90% of that iceberg is underwater, invisible, unseen to the naked eye. Arguably, the most dangerous part of the iceberg is the part that you can't see. And it's important for us in all of our, our life that we're going to understand the whole story when we live our life, particularly when it comes to the Word of God. And there's a particular part of the Word of God that it's imperative that you and I understand the whole story. Because if we only understand half of the story, particularly when it comes to the miracles of Christ, we can tend to misapply the miracles of Christ and make the miracles of Christ something that they ought not to be, right? If we're not careful when we read the miracles of Christ, we may only understand half the story. And it is half the story that's the easiest to understand, is it not? You read the Bible. We're going to be in Matthew 8 uh, right now, which I'd love for you to turn your Bible there to chapter 8, verse 14. But over the last couple of weeks, we have seen the easy part of half the story. That is, Jesus heals a leper. Jesus heals a centurion. Today, we're going to read an account of where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, where Jesus heals a lot of people with a lot of different ailments. Well, half the story is that Jesus healed people. But the question you have to ask is, is that the whole story? And what we see here in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's going to attest to in verse 17, that that is just not the whole story. It's important for us, particularly when we think about the miracles of Christ, that we understand the whole story so that we don't risk making Jesus' miracles something they were never meant to be, particularly in the world and culture that we live in today. Really, you can sum it up this way in the preaching point. Our main point here in this morning's sermon is simply this, that Jesus' miracles and His healing should serve as a poignant reminder of God's promise to permanently deliver us through Christ's substitutionary atoning death on the cross, which is what all the miracles that we see in Scripture point to is the fact that we ought to look at them as a poignant reminder of the authority and the power of God in Christ to deliver us from the ultimate consequence of the sin. The the miracles that we see, because people have ailments and sickness and disease, are symptoms of the main problem. And so as Jesus is healing the symptoms of these main problems in His earthly ministry, what He's showing you is His authority and His power and the efficacy of His ministry to do that which He came to do, which is ultimately to save us from our sin. So with that being said, I would love for you to put your eyes there, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 14. And when Jesus 
entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. In verse 15, and he touched her hand. It's important that you notice some of these slight details in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly when it shows Jesus associating himself with humanity. We've talked about a number of them to this point. Uh, Jesus' baptism, where he is baptized uh, with the baptism of repentance, where John the Baptist was baptizing there in the Jordan River at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus goes and partakes in this baptism of repentance, yet he has no need for repentance. So what was he doing? He was associating in that baptism with the sin that those who were being baptized were actually there for. They recognized their need for repentance, and so they were being baptized in preparation for the coming Messiah, which is what John the Baptist was preaching. You see also with the leper. When the leper was outside of the city, uh, and he comes to Jesus, and he is asking that Jesus would heal him, and Jesus touches the leper. We've seen ample evidence that Jesus didn't have to touch the leper to heal him, but he did to associate himself with sinful, defiled humanity. And once again, here in verse 15, we have Jesus reaching out to touch the mother-in-law of Peter, who is laying in bed, struck with a high fever, showing that Jesus is far from afraid to associate with the sinfulness of humanity. And it gives us evidence of the real reason he came to, in the most definite way possible, associate himself with sinful humanity via the cross. And he touches her hand, and the fever left her. Immediately. This wasn't a, hey, come back, see me in five days and, and let me know if, if you still have a fever. It isn't, hey, go home, take some, some medicine, go lay down for three days and rest up and recuperate and you should be fine. It is, he touches her and immediately her fever left her. And as proof of this, the empirical evidence of this is she rose and began to serve him. Did you notice the complete nature of the healing of Christ in this situation? The complete, right? There was no question of whether or not the touch of Christ was efficacious to the woman because what you saw evident in the woman's life was an immediate healing and an immediate response of get up and get to serving Jesus. If there was any question about Jesus' ability to heal this woman and her actual status of her health, it is all dissipated the moment that she rises and begins to serve Christ. Now, I think this is very important, particularly in a culture that we live in today, where uh, we have a lot of cultures and a lot of Christian movements of faith healing. And it's important for us, as we are studying texts like this, even as a preaching point suggests, that the miracles just are not the point. The miracles ought to point us to the main point. And like many faith healers in our day, they claim the gift of healing but unlike these faith healers that we have in our culture here, who often their healings are inconspicuous, subtle, vague, you have here in Christ's healings, they were obvious, they were empirical, and they were comprehensive. Did you notice this? Which is the important part about healing in Scripture, is healing was meant to be obvious, it was meant to prove the authoritative power of Christ and the apostles throughout the New Testament. They weren't meant to be subtle. They weren't meant to be 
inconspicuous. They were meant to be conspicuous. They were meant to be bold. They were meant to get the attention of people so that they would hear the message that was being conveyed by Christ and later in the life of the apostles. And what you see here is Jesus didn't halfway heal. There was no subtle healing. This was a complete cure of her fever, and she was up serving Jesus, no need of rehab. No need to go stop at a convalescent home for a while. Just get up and let's get to work. You see, when Jesus accomplishes his work, he accomplishes his work completely, totally. And that's the first point I want you to write down. I want you to sum it up this way. I want you as a Christian, if you are a Christian in this room, to rejoice in the efficacious work of Christ. I want you to rejoice in the efficacious work of Christ. You, you, know, you may not know. What does the word efficacious mean? It's a really important word. It's a really important word in the Christian faith, in church history, uh, that we understand efficacious to mean that it accomplishes its intended purpose. And I can't think of a better way to use the word efficacious than ascribing it to the person and work of Christ. When Christ says it, when Christ sets out to do it, you can be assured of its efficacious nature. You can be sure that it's going to complete that which it set out to do, which is in part what you see here with Matthew the Apostle. He's saying, Jesus, when he said this needs to get done, it gets done. When he touches the woman, there is no question whether or not she's going to be healed or not. And on and on and on through the Gospel of Matthew. When you and I as Christians, we have nothing left to do but rejoice in the efficacious work of Christ. Because when you think about your life as a Christian, the thing that must come to your mind frequently is the person and work of Christ is effective as He has saved me and as He is working in me through His Holy Spirit to both preserve me, to sanctify me, and to prepare me for the glory that will be revealed at His return. And so your whole life as a Christian from salvation on is rejoicing in the work of Christ that is accomplishing its purpose, which is one of the biggest problems that I see even in wonderful, solid Bible-teaching churches when it comes to the way that people think about the work of Christ. We think the work of Christ is good for our salvation because nobody wants to question their salvation, right? And so we're kind of forced to trust in the efficacious work of salvation. But it really comes out often in our faith when we are so sure that the work of Christ is sufficient for our sanctification, but then we start having questions when it comes if the work of Christ is efficacious for our sanctification. When it comes to the fact that, did Christ save you? Absolutely. Well, is he progressively making you holy? Well, you know, it's, I'm just, you know, it's, it's been, I've been hard. I'm hard-headed. You know, there's a lot of things to overcome in my life. It's like Christ overcame your sin, did he? The, the actual root problem of this sanctification problem, Christ overcame that, right? He did. So if Christ can overcome your unbelief and draw you to repentance and faith, do you not think that his work is efficacious enough to sanctify you? to conform you into His image. If He's powerful enough to save, He's powerful enough to sanctify. And if He's powerful enough to save and sanctify, He is powerful enough 
to bring us to glorification. That is simply that He will bring us to Himself and He will make us like Him in His glorified state where we will have new bodies and we will have desires that never are contrary to God. We will have an appetite that is always in line with the will of God and we'll have affections always aligned to the kingdom of God. And that is the promise that we have and we can rejoice in that promise both in the here and as we anticipate what is to come. And we can do that strictly from the words of Jesus because when he's on the cross in John 19, verse 30, this is what he says. He had received the sour wine that had been lifted up to him as he's sitting there on the cross, on the, on the cross, as he's being crucified, as he's dying in our place. And it is said, he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And so you have to ask yourself, what's finished? If something is finished, that means the efficacy of the means were sufficient to get to the desired outcome. Did you hear that? Did you follow that? The importance of Christ saying it is finished is you must say, then that which he came to do was accomplished at the cross. And if he came to save us from our sins by being a substitution on the cross for the sins of those who would come to know Him and trust in Him, then you can rest assured that it is accomplished. And then you as a Christian can rejoice in this because you know the same God who didn't leave you in your sin is the same God who's not going to leave you without being sanctified. The same God who's not going to leave you where you are, but is going to bring you, as Scripture says, from one degree of glory to the next, meaning that you're going to go from a state of sanctification to a progressive state of sanctification to another state of sanctification. Simply said in you know, layman's terms, you're going to sin less, and you're going to live for Christ more, and I can bank on that promise because of the efficacious work of Christ. If he can save you, he will sanctify you. And that trust in that is also our confidence that he is going to come back and he's going to bring us to himself. And we know that because of another text that you ought to jot down. Hebrews 9, verse 28. Hebrews 9, verse 28. Hey, we're a note-taking church if you didn't know. You're new here, you need something, right? Something, you need a pen, you need a piece of paper, you need a napkin, you need, you need somebody's white t-shirt, something. Hebrews 9, verse 28. We see here that Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. So he's, he's coming here, he's accomplished that. But there's a time that he's coming back. And he's coming back and he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's, he's done that. That's accomplished. His work has been done. But he's coming to save those who eagerly await him. So when I say we need to rejoice in the efficacious work of Christ because really what we're doing is saying, when Christ comes back, I have no fear of further need for justification. I have no further need for more of the work of Christ to set me before the, a holy God as justified. Now, do I want to be sanctified? Absolutely. Do I want to make sure I'm living for the Lord and preparing well for Him as I'm awaiting His turn? Absolutely. But there's nothing left for me to do when it comes to my standing before a holy God, then what has already been done and what has already been finished when he was offered once to bear the sins of many. 
as long as I have turned from my sin, I've placed my trust in Christ, nothing left to do when it comes to my position in the kingdom of God, when it comes to my justification, my forensic righteousness, that I'm accounted righteousness judicially through the Father, or in the Father, through Christ. But he's coming back, and he's going to come, and he's going to save those who eagerly await for him. He's going to bring us to himself. He's going to glorify us. And so really for us, there's nothing here to do but to rejoice in Christ. And I want you to realize that. And the question you really have to ask is, then why do I live so much of my life not rejoicing in Christ? Why do I live so much of my life miserable, looking just like all the other you know, unregenerate people in the world who have no hope and are lost in this world with no answer? And I'm, I'm confident that you don't rejoice in the efficacious work of Christ, that maybe you don't even think the work of Christ is efficacious for you. Maybe you haven't even thought about the word efficacious, never said it in your life, don't even know what it meant. And all I'm saying is you defend the efficacious work of Christ when you say that you're saved and you, and you say that I'm saved and I know for a fact I'm saved, then you believe in the efficacious work of Christ. The question is, why do you only believe it when it comes to being saved, but you don't believe it when it comes to Christ progressing you in his image, in his likeness. Why don't we believe it when we say, when you're meeting and counseling with your spouse or you're in a really bad place with with other people in your family, but you say you're all saved, but then you're like, well, there's no hope for them. I'm sorry, the hope for them was on the cross. It was efficacious. If they're saved, they have the hope of Christ. And we can trust that if they're saved and they're sealed by the work of Christ, then they're going to be sanctified. We've read that in Ezekiel for months here, haven't we? 36, 26, and 27. He's going to take away... The heart of stone, and he's going to give you a heart of flesh, and he's going to give you his spirit, and he's going to cause you to walk in his commandments. So who's doing the causing? The efficacious work of Christ. Who's going to cause you to obey him? The efficacious work of Christ. The question is, do you believe, because you you say that we believe that Christ, his salvation, it works because I'm saved. Do you believe that in your whole life? Because if you don't believe that Christ can sanctify you, I have a hard time believing that you believe Christ can save you. Because if he can deal with the root problem, then he can deal with the symptoms. And that's the whole point of this text, is saying that Jesus is dealing with the symptoms, which should prove to you that he can also deal with the root. But it's kind of opposite in the sense here that we believe that Jesus can deal with the root, but we have a hard time believing that he can sufficiently deal with with the symptoms of our life. And we're going to say, well, that's not believing the efficacious work of Christ. If I'm going to believe in the work of Christ, I'm going to believe that he can do it, and he will do it, because it is for his glory. It is for his good. I want you to get to a place in your Christian life where you can't actually rejoice in the work of Christ. And I'm concerned that it's because we don't want to think about our salvation other than the fact that we have it, right? We don't want to question it. We don't want to examine ourselves, but it's worth it. You hear it all the time here. You need to work out your faith with fear and trembling. You need to examine yourself to make sure you're in the, in the faith. It's important to do that because we see so many people who say, well, I just don't see the fruit of Christ in my life. I don't see sanctification in my life. Well, then that's a problem because the, the proof of the efficacious work of Christ is he's going to bring all these things to completion, that he's going to do that which he set out to do, and it's going to be effective, and it's going to happen. And so it is of grave matter when it comes to your salvation that you are being sanctified. We all going to get sanctified at the same measure at the same time? No. But we are all promised to be sanctified. And it's worth looking at my life and saying, do I believe that the work of Christ is truly efficacious? And that truly I can have great joy 
in the fact that I'm being led by the Holy Spirit to be made more like Christ, and I spend the rest of my life serving him, a lot like we see here with Peter's mother-in-law, who the minute that she was healed, she started doing the work of, the, of God. And the question is, are we doing the work of God? Or are we just saying, I want the benefits of salvation, but I really don't believe in the efficacious work of Christ for my rest of my life? And then we wonder, why don't I really look forward to eternity? Because we're sitting here in the, in the here and now, you know, some, professing that we're saved, and then we're sitting here like, I just, I, I just live in this nebulous, ethereal place where it, my life really doesn't imitate Scripture. My life doesn't look like what Scripture says, but I know I'm saved. I'm just kind of waiting for it all to, to pan out at some time. And we're just saying, I think you can have more joy than that. I think, you can, I think you can spend more time rejoicing than that. I just think one of the biggest problems is, yeah, maybe you don't believe in the efficacious work of Christ. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you are saved and you need to learn what it means to then have your life in line with what it means to trust in the work of Christ, his completed work. And you would live so much more of your life rejoicing. I do it all the time, even when me and my wife get in an argument because I'm you know, being me, you know. And I sit and I think, I'm so glad I'm less like me today than I was last year. And Christ is going to make me less like me and more like him in the future. That's something to rejoice in, isn't it? And I'm saying that's part of the picture of trusting in the work of Christ. He's going to do it. He's going to accomplish it. He will sanctify you. You don't have to wonder about it. If he saved you, he will sanctify you. And he will glorify you. I want you to see the effective work of Christ particularly because when we see Matthew in, in verse 14, he's talking about a single person. Right? He's talking about a single person. But when we get to verse, did I say 15? 15. Verse 15, and well, 14 and 15, he's talking about a single person. But I want you to notice in verse 16, he says, you know that effective work for that single person? It's not just for that single person. And he, he kind of broadens it out quite substantially. Watch this in verse 16. We're wondering, okay, the work of Christ, I believe it's efficacious. I believe it accomplishes its intended purposes. Uh, but maybe for her and not for thou, or, you know, them and not for me. And you, you see that in our culture, right? Well, you know, it's good for them, but not for them. But watch this, because Matthew completely dispels any thought of that. That evening, after Jesus has gone and, and healed Peter's mother-in-law with a touch, they brought to him Many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast the spirits out with a word and healed all who were sick. So that was Matthew's way of saying, all right, here's this example with a leper. Here's an example with a centurion. Here's an example with the, mother's, or the, with the mother-in-law of Peter. And then, in case you didn't understand, everything else too. All the other stuff, all the other sicknesses, all the other disease, Jesus' work healed that as a proof that he could do much more than that that he accomplished on the cross. You see that. That's what Matthew does this quite a bit through Matthew. He goes to big examples, and then he goes to all the way to the end where he just summarizes it. And he's like, in case you didn't understand, Jesus can, can heal all the things. Everything that happened, he's got it. What we see in verse 16 is this, this far-reaching power of Christ that nothing can thwart. We're going to see that through Matthew 8 and 9. We see that, okay, well, obviously leprosy can't thwart the plan of God, right? We see that, uh, that sickness, that fever, that paralysis, demonic forces can't, cannot usurp the authority of Christ. We see that even here. Uh, we're going to get to a place where, you know, they're on the Sea of Galilee, and you know the, the, the story of the storm on Galilee, and Jesus just calms it. And so we see that even, even nature and creation ex itself cannot overcome the power of Christ. You know, all of this is simply to show us that not only is Christ's work efficacious, does it work 
in a situation, it works in a far-reaching way. It doesn't just work for one person. It works for all those to whom God has called to himself. It will eventually work to all creation, that he will overcome all the sin. He will overcome this world, which he, Scripture teaches us that he has overcome the world. And he's going to come to then bring all the world in subjection to himself. Do you see, if you read Matthew correctly, what it's doing is it's giving you a glimpse into what's coming. And so what is important for you and me as a Christian is to recognize, to say, okay, I see what was happening in the moment, in the context. I recognize that Christ has come to save us from our sins, so I'm going to make sure I respond by turning from my own sin and placing my trust in the righteousness of Christ. But I'm also recognizing that there's a far-reaching power of the atonement of Christ that goes way farther than just my personal salvation. There's a corporate aspect to this. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a universal aspect of this in the sense that the whole universe, all of the galaxies, every particle and molecule in all of creation is going to be brought under subjection to Christ because of what he finished on the cross. Did you see that? It's important for us to see that Matthew is painting, at least in a small way, that, that picture, that all everything, all these things, Christ had the power and authority to take and to own, particularly when it comes to our sin, on him. And it didn't matter if it was a demon-possessed person. It doesn't, doesn't matter if it was a paralytic. It didn't matter if they were in the middle of the sea. It didn't matter where they were. Christ's authority and his power was sufficient and far-reaching to atone. Sum it up this way in point number two. You need to trust in the far-reaching power of Christ's atonement. And just to recapitulate as you think about that, trust in the far-reaching power of Christ's atonement, all I'm doing is pointing you back to what Matthew is doing. So if anyone would say, well, I'm not a leper, well, I'm not the centurion, well, I'm not Peter's mother-in-law, I'm just, I'm just something different. And then, and then this, is, this is what Matthew said. Okay, well, he did this with all the other people too. So what kind of exception are you than all the other people? Right? That he has this far-reaching power of forgiveness that reaches the depths and the heights of sinful humanity. And I want you to trust in that. Trust in the far-reaching power of Christ's atonement. His atonement, atonement, right? It's a word. It means a payment. It means to make it right. So Christ had, had gone to the cross to make things right between us and God. And it's a far-reaching atonement. It's personal. It's corporate. Because God's going to have a nation up there. You know, often when you, talk about, uh, when you talk about salvation, you often talk about it in the I, me, and my situation, don't you? Well, when I get to heaven, well, I can't wait to be in eternity with God. Or somebody, you know, dies and you say, well, I can't, I can't wait until they see the Lord. Or I can't wait until I see them with the Lord. But you, you realize the idea of the new heavens and the new earth where people are going to be from every tribe, every tongue, every nation is, is a we concept. Right? It's corporate. Like we are going to be there, which I think ought to change the way, sidebar, that you interact even here in your church family because it ain't just that you are going to go to heaven or you are going to go spend eternity with God. Like we are going to spend eternity with God. That's why the Bible talks so much about preaching unity and harmony in the body of Christ because you're not getting away from each other. Right? If you're convinced you're saved and you're convinced you're saved, and I trust that you are, you, you might as well get to the place where you look at each other and say, we better get real comfortable with each other because knowing the sovereignty of God, we'll be neighbors. Right. 
you see what I'm saying? You, you got to recognize the far-reaching power of Christ, and that it is corporate. But it all—it is personal, right? It is personal, right? You're not getting saved based upon your grandmother's testimony, right? Nobody, if you're, you know, I don't want to get onto the Catholics. Like nobody can, pray, you know, nobody's going to pray you out of another place into another place. This is not happening, right? It's based upon the fact that you have placed your trust in the righteousness of Christ to make you holy in the presence of a just, holy, righteous God. And you would trust in the substitutionary atonement of Christ on your behalf. And if you do, really playing off that point number one, you can look at texts like Romans 8, 28 through 30. If Christ can do it to them, to the woman, Peter's mother-in-law, to the centurion, to the leper, well, then what does that mean in my life? That means, like I've said already, he's going to save you. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You like that verse, don't you? A lot of us memorize that verse. You know what that verse is about? The efficacious work of Christ is what it's about, isn't it? We know, like I'm certain, I know this for a fact, that all those who love God, all those who God has produced love for him in them through salvation, because that's the only people that love God, the only people that have any love for God are those to whom God has produced that love, right? That's That's how it happens. All things work together for good. All things. The bad things, yes. The good things, yes. The mediocre things, yes. Do not despise a day of small beginnings. All the things. For those who are called according to his purpose. Really, what you've got to ask is, am I called according to the purposes of God? Because as I'm walking in the purposes of God, I know that all these things are going to be effective as a means to bring about the good works of God in my life. Now, we know that one, but what about verses 29 through 30? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So I love this, if you think about it, the far-reaching power of Christ's atonement. The far-reaching power of Christ's atonement is sufficient to save you as he died on the cross, and then to get in your life and make you like him. It's far-reaching. I don't care what continent you're from. I don't care what people you're from. I don't care what family you're from. If he foreknew and predestined you, he will conform you. In order, and this is another reason why, right? Far-reaching power of Christ and his goodness and his sovereignty. Here's what he does. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, focus on that. Ultimately, there's a lot of benefits for your sanctification in your own life, right? Your spouse will say thank you. Your kids will appreciate it, that God has made you more like Christ. Amen? Okay, but here, look at this. You will be conformed into the image of Christ in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. What's the real motive behind your sanctification? The glory of God. That Christ would be made preeminent among those to whom he saves. That he will have a people and that he will be preeminent above them as a show of his compassion and his glory and his goodness. That he will be exalted among many brothers. So the fact that you would be, even be conformed to the image of Christ is proof that Christ is saying, I'm doing this for me, my glory. You see this all throughout the Old Testament when God says, for my name, I will vindicate my name. I will save you for my name, for my glory. It's not because you did this. It's not because you did that. It's for my name. Right? Which is why we can trust in these things like the work of Christ and the far-reaching power of the atonement of Christ because we're Ultimately, God's going to do this for his name. And God's not going to let his name be profaned. You read, you read the Bible? I will not let my name be profaned among the nations. 
I will show the world who I am, says Yahweh. And so I know God's going to do these things. And this is where you can start getting excited, church. I know God's going to do these things in spite of me because who he is. And I can trust that there is nobody who is too sinful to receive the atoning work of Christ because it is God who works and wills. It's God's work. This is why, again, I mean, I'm saying it a lot more in this service than the nine. Maybe somebody needs to hear it in here. This nonsense of not progressing in sanctification. This nonsense to say, I just, you know, I just, I can't stop doing that. Of course you can't. It's what the efficacious work of Christ is here for. It's what the Holy Spirit was given to you for. That's what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so I want you to think the far-reaching power of Christ is, is corporate, right? I mean, there's going to be people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue. But it's also individual in the fact that when we see here that if he called you, he's going to justify you. And if he's justified you, if you're saved, notice how Paul talks about this. You're justified, you're saved. You're conformed into the image of the Son. That means you're being sanctified. And then those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's interesting if you know the doctrine of glorification. That's something we receive after the resurrection or at the resurrection, isn't it? But here, Paul says, those whom he justified, like they're justified right now, right? He also glorified. Same tense. Why is it saying that he glorified us when we're not yet glorified. You look in the mirror and you can say, not glorified. Okay. And, and the point I believe is clear here is although glorification has not happened in our life currently, Paul speaks of it as if it's already complete just as salvation is. That it's just as done in the life of the Christian because of the atoning work of Christ. Because of the far-reaching power of Christ, I know that even as I stand here today and eternity is in God's eschatological calendar, wherever it is, I know the far-reaching of the power of Christ has sealed me from today to eternity. And I can trust that, and I'm as good as glorified. Not glorified. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to die. You're going to get sick. You're going to die. But the hope is that you have and the confidence you have in the far-reaching power of Christ's atonement is, even though I die, I shall live. All right, why focus on the atonement? I mean, we're looking at this text. It talks a lot about Jesus just healing people from their ailments and their uh, oppression from demonic forces. But why focus on the atonement here? Because we trust, even as Matthew's writing, that he's making this all about the atonement to come, and I want you to I want to prove that to you by looking at just look at verse seventeen. Verse seventeen, he's bringing this these successive pericopes to their conclusion, the last few accounts, and he's bringing them to conclusion. And I want you to notice, big story, big story, right? Leper, centurion, small story, Peter's mother-in-law, really small summary. Everybody else too, because he wants to get to the point. He said, the point isn't making all these stories the center point. The point is this. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill all of this. Everything I just told you, that, 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 the leper, the centurion, Peter's mother-in-law, all these other people, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Fulfillment is one of the big themes in the Gospel of Matthew. We see it all throughout the pages. Matthew is a very Jewish gospel, and what it means is this. He's writing to a predominantly... uh, 
Jewish population, mostly Jewish Christian population, but these people grew up with the Old Testament prophets being taught and preached, and Matthew's writing in such a way where he's connecting the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament with Jesus. And so all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, you see this. Here's what happened. This is how it fulfilled Isaiah. Here is what happened. Here's how it fulfilled Jeremiah. Here's what happened. Here's how it fulfilled the prophets. Over and over again, because what Matthew is trying to show us, and he does very well, is to say, this Jesus to whom I'm writing about is the one who was promised and given unto us to die on our behalf that we might live to him. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our disease. And that's a quotation from Isaiah 53, verse 4. Matthew's point is to show how Jesus is the coming deliverer of God's people. And that part of the proof of that is that he's able to touch the infirmities and heal them. He's able to bear them upon himself and to give healing and liberation. And what it is is proof of his capacity to do the thing that he actually came to do, which is to take away our sin. Don't you want that? I mean, when somebody says, hey, I can build that house for you, I'd say, oh, okay, on what authority? Right? Do you, are, you, can you, are you a builder? Right? Do you, are, you, are you permitted with the city? Do you have any proof that you can do that thing? I mean, do you, do you have a portfolio? I'd like to see some other houses you've built. I mean, we're talking about a, you know, a, mar- a house here, a third world house. I mean, I, I, depending on what you mean by house, what does that mean? I mean, are you, are you efficacious? Can you accomplish what you, you set out to accomplish? And so that's really the picture we see here. And Jesus says, proof, 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 proof. And Matthew says, proof from the prophets, proof from the prophets, proof from the prophets. This is him. It's, it should be of no debate in your mind that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament pointed to as the Messiah to come. With that being said, I want to turn you to the text that Matthew is focusing on here. So I'd love for you to turn to Isaiah 53. We'll start there in verse 4. In the context of Isaiah 53, this has been known even throughout history as the suffering servant, because that's, that's really what he, he is here, known, known as the, one who, the servant who then suffers on behalf of God's people. And what I want you to do when we, when we read this, I'll exposit it briefly as we go through it together, I want you to, to keep in mind the amount of substitutionary language. Okay, substitutionary. That means you didn't get something that you deserved, and it was given to the suffering servant who didn't deserve it, who took it on your behalf. That's the idea of substitutionary language. So that it points back to what Matthew is saying the whole time in this text. Watch this. Verse 4, chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's exactly the quotation that we have here in Matthew 8, there in verse 17. That's, That's the quotation there. And then he continues going. Well, he says, he has borne our grief. So whose, whose griefs did the suffering servant bear? Not his own, others. He carried not his sorrows, but the sorrows of others. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Isn't that the way we think about Christ when we think about his death? That we esteem him stricken by God. That we account to him that he was stricken, that he was pierced, that he was chastised. That's, that's how we think about Christ when we think about his death. He was smitten by God, verse 14 says, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. You see that? He took upon him a judgment for 
our sin, substitutionary language. And he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So we have a problem with God, and the problem with God is there is no peace with us with God because we are enemies of God, alienated from the people of God and the commonwealth of Israel is what Ephesians tells us. We had no possibility of being placed into the family of God. But yet here it says that upon him was given chastisement, that punishment, and that punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so there was his wounds, and somehow through his wounds, we have received healing. Which you got to recognize this in its messianic fulfillment, because if you stab me, that doesn't heal you. There's no substitutionary reality there of me taking that which is yours because it doesn't do anything to you. You're still going to have all the problems that you're going to have. You're still going to die. You're still going to get sick. You're still going to have all of these problems that are going to ultimately end up in you having to answer for your own sins before God. But here, that he's going to have these wounds, this penal substitutionary atonement that we, we call, that there is this judgment, this legal pronouncement on Christ, right, penal, right, there's going to be this judgment, there's going to be law brought down on him, wrath brought down on him, but it's going to be that which we deserved, but he's then going to take it on our behalf. And, that, and through that, we're going to be atoned for. The payment's going to be made, and we're going to be healed. Here's what we've added to this. You know, well, what part do I get to play in this? I'll show you. Verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. That's what we added to the, the equation. What did you add to the gospel? The sin that made it necessary. Isn't that how we say it? And that's what we added. However, the Lord, in the end of verse 6, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's got to be something, as we think about Christ's work continually in the Gospels, that we see taught about even by the apostles after the resurrection of Christ, that says Jesus is sufficient for these things. Which brings you back to point one. Jesus has to be effective. He has to be, or he's not sufficient to take away our sins. And so that's why we push so hard on this idea that and you see the gospel writers doing it and Jesus himself doing this to say he's authoritative to accomplish the goal for which he set out to accomplish in our life. And what we see through the suffering servant and what Matthew is taking us to Isaiah to bring back to us right here is to say he's sufficient. He came to fulfill this, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. And the end of verse 8 says that he was stricken for the transgressions of my people. And then go to verse 10. Yet, and this is, this is the scandal of the cross, isn't it? It was the will of God, Lord Yahweh, to crush him. And he has put him to grief. So when we think about the cross, and we ultimately think about who put Christ on the cross, the answer is unequivocally God. God put Jesus on the cross. It was His will to crush the Son and to put Him to grief. And that His soul, verse 10, would be made as an offering for guilt. That His soul, Him on the cross, would be an offering for the guilt, our guilt. And then verse 11, And out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and He shall be satisfied. Why? Because now he's the firstborn among many brothers. I mean, for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross, is what Hebrews says. 
And here is why when we looked at Romans 8, because he's going to be the firstborn. He's going to be the firstborn among many brothers. And he's going to be uh, the preeminent in creation as the prominent, the one to whom everyone looks at. And so in a real way, he, even in his anguish, anguish, shall see and be satisfied that he's fulfilling the will of God. And he's bringing, listen to the the rest of verse 11, he's bringing this, that by his knowledge and his righteousness, my my servant may make many to be accounted righteous. He was satisfied, even in his anguish, to recognize that he was going to make many to be accounted righteous. Look back at Matthew. How can we make Matthew about the healing miracles? How can we make this simply about him healing a leper and healing a centurion and healing Peter's mother-in-law? When Matthew literally says he did this to prove this, this much more significant pivotal, important part of God's redemptive plan for humanity, that he took our place. That's what this is all about. He took our place. And that's what the Old Testament fulfillment in Christ focuses on, is the redemption. It's not about temporary healing. You know, unfortunately, every human being throughout all history that had received temporary healing died again. And so it can't be about temporary healing, or the work of Christ isn't truly efficacious, because it didn't work forever. It only worked for some amount of time. But here we see that it was never fully about the temporary healing. It was about the eternal redemptive purposes of Christ. I want you to sum it up that way. Point number three. You need to focus on the eternal redemptive purposes of Christ's miracles. Focus on the eternal redemptive purpose of Christ's miracles. Redemptive, right? He's the deliverer. He's the Savior. And what we're looking at when we look at these miracles in the Gospels is we're saying those are actually authenticating something. Right? Those are showing me further proof of something much more substantial. Isn't it wonderful when you pray to God in this time and somebody's in the hospital and God heals them through the prayers as a means that God would use to heal people? Isn't that a wonderful thing? It is a wonderful thing. But you wouldn't by any means, in any stretch of the imaginations, look around and tell people, this is the substance of Christianity, would you? You'd never say that. You would say, well, this is just a part of the abundance that is the grace and mercy of God that he would choose to heal certain people. But it's really what that is, is is, is a showing of what his real power is, that he redeems a people for eternity. You wouldn't by any means. Somebody says, well, it's amazing that God healed that person in the hospital. And you would say, that's what this is all about? That's what Christianity is all about? You would not say that. At least I hope you wouldn't say that, would you? Because that would be wrong, wouldn't it? Because Christianity isn't primarily about that. But that opportunity shows that who Christ really is and what he actually has the power to do. You want to talk about salvation? You want to talk about that which really ails you? Christ has come to redeem us from that. And it's not just from from my mouth or Matthew's mouth. It's from the mouth of Christ. I'd love you because you're probably already really close there. Turn to Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9. Starting there in verse 1. It's a little bit after where we are currently. We'll be here in depth in a couple of months, Lord willing. But Matthew 9, starting there in verse 1. And getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
I thought his problem was that he was paralyzed, not that he was a sinner. But Jesus is pointing out the clear issue at hand and what he has really come to accomplish. And so he looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Now watch how he uses a miracle. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, said, what do you think? Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? What's really easier when, when you're thinking about these two options? Your sins are forgiven, right? I, I can tell you that, right? Your sins are forgiven. No ability to prove that. No ability to prove the efficacy of my statement. But watch what Jesus does. But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. Why did Jesus do the miracle? To prove that he has authority to take the sin of people upon himself and redeem them and cleanse them and set apart for himself a people for his own purpose and for his own glory. And for you and I, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, we must come to that conclusion every time we read this, that what Christ has done in such a beautiful way is proved to you and me that he is sufficient for our sins. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And although we know that every healthy person will eventually die, we can recognize that every person who is in Christ has an assurance that their permanent deliverance is drawing near. And that is the hope and that is the confidence that we have in Christ Jesus.